0: Welcome to the Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by his grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to him. Thanks for joining us. Reading from Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This is the word of the Lord.
1: So we're down to the fifth letter, Sardis, and before we get to uh, the words that you just heard that were written to the church, just a very little context about the city, uh, the city of Sardis. Now there are many things that can be said about this city, but I want to call out just two things that are maybe relevant to what we heard this morning. One is, this was known as a city with a golden past. So the city actually was known for gold dust in their streams, in the silt at the bottom. And apparently this was a place where gold coins and silver coins were first minted. And in fact, the stories that they attributed to their golden past was actually went back to uh, the famous story, uh, the legend, the Greek and Roman legend. You might have heard this. Uh, King Midas, or King Midas, however you pronounce that. The king with a golden touch, if you remember that story. And at some point uh, where he realizes it's a curse, he, the gods go and ask him to wash his hands in the streams of uh, a spring that was close to Sardis. Uh, but in reality, the city was actually rich. And in fact, they were also known for a reign by King Croesus. And this was a time where the kingdom was extremely wealthy. But all of that suddenly came to an end uh, when King Cyrus, the king of Persia, decided to actually invade them. And this was completely, uh, the city was completely unaware. Now, they didn't feel threatened at any point in time because the fortress at Sardis actually was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs. And so the fortress was impregnable. There was no threat. But some Persian troops under Cyrus actually got their way through and realized it was left completely unguarded. And that was the end. The city had a misplaced security. And after that, it was completely in ruins. And so when you think of that, the church, when you look at what you read today, hadn't really learned their lesson from their history in the city as well. The church too, like the city that had a golden past, seemed to have a name, but we realize that at the heart of this letter from Jesus, Jesus calls out a contradiction if you heard those words. It's you have a name or a reputation, but that contradicts reality. And so they too had a sort of a misplaced security, just like the city, and they realized that, on the inside does actually decay it doesn't glitter like it looks on the outside and so with that brief context let me remind you of verse one let me read that again to you it's the opening words that are critical these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of god and the seven stars that was seven spirits were translated and some of your translations a little easier it might say the sevenfold spirit it probably gives you an idea of what it is in fact when you go further and you look at chapter five it says The Lamb, it defines the Lamb of God seated on the throne as having seven eyes and seven spirits were sent out into all the earth. The Spirit of God symbolically being referred to over here. So this is one Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit of God. This is the all-seeing, all-knowing, penetrating, omniscient, almighty Spirit of God. That's what this is about. And so when you read that and then you realize maybe this, here's how we understand the very first sentence that was read to us. This is a letter from Jesus. These are the words of him who sees it all. He speaks about his church and its members. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he also holds you in his hands. Both of those are true. Now, when you think of that, that's actually a a powerful combination. That's a very unique combination when you think of a relational dynamic. That doesn't exist in reality. Think of another relationship where this may be true in your lives. Because most often... The way you hold on to some relationship is dependent on how much you know about that person, isn't it? So, for example, if you help someone, if you embrace them, and over time you realize there is something that you know about their personality that causes you some sort of hurt, you begin to loosen that grip slowly, isn't it? Or like parents sometimes will cling onto their children, especially when they believe the children are not capable of doing things on their own. We hold different relationships depending on our knowledge of them. That is why even in church, as you get to know people over time, it's difficult to embrace everybody like you should because you know certain things about people and you're unable to love people the way you should. That's a sad reality. Now think of a relationship. Imagine a relationship where somebody, you knew something about the person. In fact, you knew everything about that person. You knew their darkest secret. You knew their deepest motive. You knew how they would speak about you when you were not there. What would your embrace be like? Would you hold on to them? And so when you look at verse 1, this is from a person, Jesus, who says, I know it all. I know my church. I know every member. And despite knowing everything about you, I still hold you in my hands. That is incredible. But the church at Sardis seemed to have forgotten this reality. And so what's the warning to them? Look at verse 3. What did they hear when this letter was read out? I know your deeds you have a reputation of being alive but are dead. You know what a reputation is? Certain opinions or beliefs that you have about someone. And when those opinions and beliefs are put together, you have a certain perception, a reputation of that person, isn't it? And so here, when, what he's telling this church is, you have a reputation of being alive, which is not just alive in the sense There's so many deeds, you're alive and kicking. It's more than that. The word used here for alive is actually the same word that is used in other parts of scripture where it says, you were dead to the law, but now you are alive in Christ, speaking about spiritual life. So what Christ, the words here actually is, I know you're spiritually vibrant. Now we don't know anything about this church, probably the least among all those seven. We don't know who planted this church. Most probably in Asia Minor, it was Paul's ministry that birthed a whole lot of churches under persecution when God's word spread forth. But you, you think about these words saying, oh, they say on the surface, they look like they're spiritually alive. And so maybe with some contextualization, it looked like this. When you walked into the church, there would have been somebody to greet you with a smile. When they usher you in, and when you came in, there was already an order of service in your hands and everything was set up. And when you sat there, there was maybe faithful expositional preaching because there doesn't seem to be any admonishment on that matter here, just like the other churches. Remember, there was false teaching, there was a the teaching of Nicolaitans, there was Balaam, nothing like that over here. Maybe this church had most things that every healthy evangelical church wanted. There were community groups that you could go to in different parts of the city. There were kids' ministry for all age groups. There were men and women who met during the week as, as frequently as they could. And all of that was there, and it sounds like this was a church that was spiritually vibrant. Now, I know all that I said doesn't sound like Sardis, but I wanted to bring it close to us because I don't want us to skim over these words where Jesus is writing to that church and to all the churches and to us, saying there's something that I know about you. And I I want him to search our hearts this morning. So, remember, there's a theme constantly in Revelation. We've been seeing this almost in every letter, isn't it? That things do not appear, things do not seem in terms of how they actually appear to be. There's a difference. In fact, sometime back, if you remember the letter of the church at Smyrna, there were people dying, but he says they're alive. They looked like they were poor, but they were rich. But here it's the opposite. He says, you look like you're spiritually alive, but you have a reputation. Actually, on the inside, you are dead. I wonder what that looked like. So maybe if you walk back into the church that I just described for you, it might look like this. When you walk in, maybe there were still people to greet you with a smile. And they ushered you to a place that you sat in. But that smile could come sometimes because of the happiness of volunteering, not from the joy of worship. We don't want that. Imagine ushering somebody into a place of worship when you have no personal worship going on in your hearts. Trust that's not the case with us. Or maybe when you walked in and you realized everything seems to be set up over here, looks like we're ready to worship. But in most churches, despite all that, people who set up the entire place constantly are tempted and are drawn to think of, is everything okay during the service? And all their work goes into constant distraction. They miss the very point why they set things up, which is God's worship. And that's a constant struggle as well. But there's a different way we can do this, isn't it? Early need those early morning hours. That's what I delight in. So please, would you wake me up early tomorrow? I don't know what's going on with me. And the next morning, I woke up late again. And so I went to my room, and so my first few minutes were just confessing and asking the Lord you know, why this happened. And I went on and I read the passage. The passage I was looking at was Matthew 12, where Jesus was walking in the grain fields with his disciples. And the disciples were picking uh, heads of uh, rice grain and eating it. And the Pharisees who looked at this were furious. They didn't like it because they were desecrating a law that they held early on Sabbath. Now, I don't want to digress from the text this morning, but at the end of that text, the words were, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I was reminded that the Pharisees were so bent on getting into some sort of sacrificial obedience. And slowly, what they got so caught up with their disciplines, and that discipline seemed to matter to them because that dictated how well their walk was going. And I had to be reminded that morning that my heart was slipping. I'm so grateful the morning that the Lord caught me right there. Because I seemed to, it was almost as if God in His mercy didn't let me wake up early that morning to show me that there was something that was going on. that I was concerned on a certain kind of walk that was anchored on a certain kind of discipline. Do you see? I slowly was going to slip into this performance grid that surrounds us and that infiltrates our minds. I was slowly going to actually make something that is a discipline of grace. And I was stripping grace from it. When there's no grace in a discipline, it's only the discipline. You definitely are going to go down the route of thinking of how well you walk, and it's slowly going to become about yourself. And when you think of that, by the way, early mornings are still precious, and I might still chase you up if I know you're not spending time in the morning. But the point of the text is when you take any deed and make that the measure of your worth, that's when there's a problem. You will definitely begin to build an image or be concerned about your reputation in a very unhealthy way. And that's what's going on over here. And the church in Sardis was slipping into a state of slumber when they had to hear these words. They thought they were doing well, but God says, wake up. The words wake up, they aren't for people who are inactive. They're people sometimes who are caught up with activities, but they've lost the purpose of these activities. And when you look at that, God who knows it all in verse 2 says, wake up. Just like that city that thought they were absolutely secure, but the enemy came right through, the church thought they were doing well because they had a sort of a reputation in others' eyes. And God says, no, this will not let you stand the test on that day because he now goes on to refer to the day of the Lord. And he uses words that are, remind them of actually judgment that will await them if they walk like this because he says that he will come like a thief in the night, unannounced to them unexpected isn't it because if the second coming of the Lord will be unexpected especially to people whose expectations are not constantly about Christ's eminent return but the expectations are always about their bodies and their skills and how people perceive them and so verse 2 if you struggle with that verse 2 strengthen what remains and is about to die why for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Your deeds are not complete, almost like a mother telling her child constantly, I need you to keep your room clean. I need you to keep your beds clean. Have you got that? At some point, you know you got to do it, even though you don't like tidying your bed. And so maybe, I did this when I was a kid, is pull a sheet over a whole lot of things that are there in your bed. When your mom walks by, it looks good. Just like that cupboard where everything's stashed in and you close it. Until one day she opens it and she's greeted with your pajamas and your underwear and everything that falls all over her. And it's like that when he says, your deeds are complete. You've done just what you need to. But in your church, these deeds look good. They've ticked a box. What box does it tick? People think you're a nice person, but they're incomplete before God. It doesn't stack up before God. Now, what what could it look like? What could a deed like that be? Maybe even just visiting people. Everybody's visiting people, and I need to visit people too, because that seems to be the Christian norm. And I don't want to be left out, because that's a good thing to do. It's a deed, it's a good deed, but it's incomplete before God. Maybe it's walking up to people and constantly expressing concern before church and after church and during the week, which we do not want to stop, which is precious. But if that comes from a place where your concern is, I want you to know that I'm a person who cares for you. It's a deed that doesn't stack up before God it could be even teaching. It could be even preparing the whole week. And after all that, you encourage people. And if the dominant thought is, how well did that go? What do they think about me? It's a deed that is incomplete before God. And so you think of that, and God says, remember. In verse 3, what does he say? Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Now, when you hear that command, remember, it becomes very obvious that this is not something new. There's something that this church knew but has wandered from. And so he says, remember, remember, obey, and repent. It's very obvious that he's calling them back to something that they have wandered from. What have they wandered from? When you look at what they are pursuing, what they've wandered from becomes obvious. What are they pursuing? They're pursuing to build a reputation for themselves. They're very concerned about their image. And it becomes even more clearer when you go further, because when you go to the verses after this, he now points them to a minority. Some people in the church saying, look at these people. These people are different because they have a reputation. You see what's going on? He's warning the majority saying, you are seeking to build a reputation I want you to look at people who have a reputation. Now, maybe that doesn't make too much sense now. I trust it becomes clearer when you look through the next few verses. Look at verse 4 with me. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And he says, what did he say? He says, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. So these people who have not soiled their clothes, they've got a promise saying one day they will be dressed in white walking with Jesus. And how, in fact, everything in verse 4, about the fact that they are walking with the Lord, that they, their garments are not spoiled, and one day they will walk with Jesus, all of that is anchored on something. What is it anchored on? It says, for, the reason is what? They are worthy. And you think about that, and you say, okay, so that's why these people are worthy. But hang on, these people have not soiled their clothes. Which means they, they are dressed in white and they have, they have a garment that is not soiled. How did they get this garment in the first place? They're not soiling it and seem to be walking with Jesus. Are these people who have done deeds that are so good where their garments have become so clean? Are these people keeping their garments spotless because they're walking so well with Jesus? No, we know that's not possible because we know if anyone claims he's without sin, he's a liar. We know that from 1 John 1, 1.8. And so then, how do these people become like this? Now remember, he's contrasting this to people he's warning. Who are those people? The people that he's warning are people who've put on a certain appearance, who focused on so many deeds, and they're worried about what people think about them, so they're wearing a garment of self-righteousness. They've put it on. But these people have not put anything on. You just get a declaration, the Lord saying, they are worthy. How are they worthy? Is there anyone in all of Scripture or any person that you know where God would introspect their life and say, I've seen it all, you're such a worthy person, you've got some intrinsic worth in you? No, we know that's not the case. There's nobody like that, isn't it? Even the prophet, you remember Isaiah in 64, 6, he would say, even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags in your presence. And so who are these people? These are people simply whom the Lord has declared as worthy. That's it. These are people who've heard the incredible truth, the richness of the gospel, and they've believed it. These are people who were vile. These are people who were unrighteous. These are people who struggled with sin. These are people who were enemies. But they, not because of their deeds, because they put faith in the finished work of the cross, because they fully by grace have heard something from the Lord saying, you are worthy. You are clean. You are righteous. You have understood that exchange on the cross. I've taken on your sin and I've given you. I'm imputing a righteousness to you. These are people who is declared as worthy. These are people who have not soiled their clothes. Why? Because they have been dressed in Christ's righteousness. These are people who've put off what the others are struggling with. They're not interested in self-exaltation anymore. These are people who are truly alive. Why? Because they probably are the ones who reflect and cherish Galatians 2.20. But I have been crucified with Christ. The self has been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but I'm alive. Because Christ lives in me. And so the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those are the people he's pointing to over here. And so when he says their clothes are not soiled, it is not because they're walking perfectly, but it's because they're walking with Jesus. Like 1 John 1.9, when you walk in the light and you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. That's why their garments are not soiled. These are people who love walking with Jesus. These are not people who love being in the limelight like the others. You see the difference? And that's why he goes on now, and now he invites the whole church saying, look at what you're struggling with, but here's a minority. And he invites the whole church, those who are struggling, in verse 5 he goes on to say, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, they too will be dressed in white. Notice the words, will be dressed, as in, you're not going to dress yourself, you're a passive recipient, Christ will clothe you. And then look at the promise there i want us to understand the richness of this promise i will never blot out his name from the book of life i will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels i want us to understand the depth of what this means for us what this means for us because when you say when someone says i have an identity what they actually mean is i have a sense of self i have a sense of worth and the desperate attempt in today's culture is to convince you that you can find that sense of worth from your inner self. You can just go by what you feel and how you, what you think about yourself, and you can do anything that you want. That's your identity. That sounds very liberating, but that's empty. That's a false promise that'll crush you at some point in time. You can say things that are at the core related to your identity, saying, you can choose your gender i call you it, i call you them, I don't even know if I'm grammatically right. But you can choose your sexuality, whether it's LGBTQ, I V, I don't know if there are any more additions. At some point, 26 alphab- alphabets definitely will not be enough. You can choose something that you do or someone that you love to be the reason for your identity. It can be your carrier, it can be someone that you love. The problem is, it will disappoint you at some time. Why? For example let's say something that you do something that you do well maybe you sing well maybe you can run fast maybe you're strong maybe you've got some skills on how you can dance those are all good things nothing wrong with that when the problem is when you start making that the measure of your worth when you start doing that you soon realize something that any criticism begins to crush you when people give you feedback when people say something negative about something that you're good at it's not just feedback because they're touching a nerve on the inside because your worth is anchored on that, isn't it? And you realize this isn't really just about how good you're at at something. It's actually about how much better you are on a competitive scale than others. That's actually the truth. I can, I can carry myself better than the other person. I can run faster than the other person and at some point Every such comparison will let you down. You can be the fastest person in your school, and people elevate you for running 100 meters in less than 12 seconds, till you get to the Nationals and realize there are hundreds of people who do it in less than 12 seconds. You can be known for your academics in school because you rocked your grades, and you somehow get into the Ivy League when your identity completely crashes when you look at the people around you. You can be someone who arm wrestles with everyone in your, in your university and say, I, I, I feel pretty good about this until your friend invites you for dinner to meet the national rugby team and you shake their hands. You can be someone who says, I sing better than others till Shane and Shane decides to take membership in your local church. It doesn't end, doesn't it? Every comparison will crush you. Any identity that is achieved rather than received, anything that is achieved rather than received, places you on a comparative scale. That's the problem. And when you're like that, your default wiring is to see people through that lens. I'm here, they are there, I'm not so unworthy. What's the way out of this? What's the way out of this? And I remember Timothy Keller at some point spelling this out so simply. He says, you need to realize that you cannot name yourself or bless yourself. You need someone from the outside to do this for you. You might say, I don't need anybody. That's the usual response today. I don't need anyone. I'm fine by myself. But that's impossible. You have to realize you are a relational being. You are a social being. When you're kicked out of your workplace, when somebody employs you, that's the reason you look at your old place and say, I care two hoots, because somebody else has accepted you. Even if your own family rejects you, You're able to press on because somebody else comes up and loves you. You always need someone to accept and love you. That's the truth. That's how we're born. That's how we're designed. Now, the question is, what kind of people or what kind of a person should that be? It should be a person that you esteem and adore. It should be a person whom you love and who does not let you down. It should be a person who does not deal with you depending on how well you do. Do you know anyone like that? Do you know God, the one who created you? The one who knew you even before you were formed? What does he tell you? The one before whom every knee will bow. Have you heard from scripture what the majority in this church have forgotten? That you are loved and accepted for nothing that you did. Look at verse 5. When he says, I will acknowledge his name before my father. It's not because of any performance in your life. When he says, I will never blot out your name. Your adoption is not because you're pretty. Or how well you walk saying one day you might not be my child. That's not how he adopts us. So how do you get this? It is not achieved it is received. Now when you say it is received, it is not simply some doctrinal truth that's so distant and abstract to us. When you go to a Bible study, you're here at a church for the fifth time saying, hey, you're a child, that's your identity. No, God doesn't just appear and say, now this is your identity. But the Son of God dies for you and gives himself for you. There's a powerful relational dynamic in which he expresses this truth to you. This is how I adopt you. This is who you are. So when God says, my, your deed is not," when Jesus says, your deed is not complete before my God, he's not saying, your performance does not stack up. It's not good enough. My father is disappointed with you. You see, I learned this, and I had to be reminded of this many years back as a parent. Having a serious conversation at home, one of my kids, my boys, walked up to me and said, at some point he said, I actually feel like I needed to earn your acceptance. I said, okay, that's pretty strange. Why did that happen? Because we never communicate that in this house. You're accepted, you're cherished. There's no pressure on your performance. And he said, yes, I've heard that many times, but, and he quoted small examples, like you would come with me for swimming, but after the swimming class, when I came out, you would say, you know, if you did this, like I'm a girl, I don't even know how to swim. That's how horrible we are, isn't it? We set standards for other people because there's something that they need to live up to in our hearts. And he said, if, if you did this, and I always heard it was never enough, I clearly realized I'm I'm not communicating the gospel, though it's true in my heart. And I had to be reminded of this truth. Because God doesn't wait for your best stroke and then say, now you're splendid. But right at the outset, even before anything that you do, we don't know any relationship like this. He says, you're loved, I chose you. you're purchased at an infinite price, now go swim against the currents of the world. If you don't hear that truth before you get out, there is no way you will face every wave that is constantly coming at you every day. That's what holds us. That's what sustains us. So when you hear the words and how this letter closed, saying, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Who have you been listening to? So many of you have been listening to voices of the world and what men and women and people have to say. They might not say it explicitly in those words, but it's, it, over the years you've heard this so many times. Your worth is in how good you look. And you still succumb to that, isn't it? Don't you feel the pressure? You think of it for yourself. Or you're, you were evaluated as you grew up based on your grades. That's how precious you are. And you still, therefore, cannot get out of that performance good. Or some of you, maybe even were told you were unworthy. Maybe you were mocked. Some even abused. And those incidents of hurt cause you at some point to almost live with a vengeance. I'm going to prove myself. You don't need to you're wasting your time. You're missing the richness of the gospel. You need to listen to the words of Christ. And even if you've been someone who says, I've heard this, Lord, and I keep falling back into my unworthiness, why is it so ingrained in me? Well, listen to what he says in Isaiah 42, 3. Even a bruised reed, he will not break. Even a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Even a wick that's lost its flame, you know, it's just got that redness on it. God's saying, that's enough. I'm not going to extinguish it. My gospel is rich enough, the truth is rich enough to set you ablaze. But you need to listen to what the Spirit says. You need to take these commandments over here. Remember, remember where your worth is. Remember always that the gospel is not about what you do, but about something that has been done to you that should shape your worth and my worth. Remember the opening words of this letter that I read? That he knows you. He sees through completely and yet holds you in the grip of his hands. Why would you feel any sense of being judged? It's people who don't realize this that communicate that to you. So when you read the words, I will never blot out your name. You've got to pause and think and say, How can the mere appearance of my name in the book of life, how can that undo everything that's going to be written in the book of deeds? Why? Because I think you heard that in the opening words in the service, because it has been written by the Lamb of God who's paid for your sin. And He has purchased you, and His blood has been shed, and every name has been listed because He's written it. When I think of the words here, repent, remember, and obey, I think at the heart of this, the command to obey here is to remember, is to constantly remember this truth. There are many ways in which you can obey it. You've got to keep reminding yourself again and again of this precious reality, because you don't get to some spiritual stage in your life where at one point you say, now I can taste the inward testimony of the Spirit, like Romans 8, 16. A spirit testifies to your spirit that you're a child. You don't get there. It's because you believe in what God has said right at the outset. But you need to hear it and say no to the voices that culture is constantly imposing in your mind. You're not worthy. You're not good enough to be a child. So listen. Take time to meditate. Take time to remember verses like that. Precious truth like this. You know at night with the whole world is gazing at their phones, they're looking at those screens, getting on different digital platforms. Is that how you spend your night? Different digital platforms to find acceptance for one another. You can do something different. Maybe you can look out into the night sky and remember Isaiah 40 and verse 26. And you look at that and you say, you lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings a starry host one by one and calls them by name. You look at that and say, wow, you place these there just by your spoken word. Who are you, God? And then you think of Isaiah 43, one after that. I formed you. I created you. Fear not. I have redeemed you by name. If you don't know your God, and if you don't remember where your worth is, you will struggle like this church in Sardis and like a majority of Christians do today. The invitation here is to him who overcomes, as an invitation to walk with Jesus, to walk with God. You know, I went back and I looked at that verse in Genesis 3, 8. There's a beautiful verse there in 3, 8. It just says, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. I said, what would it be like for Adam and Eve, Lord? But the next verse is, uh, Adam and Eve are not with him. They're already hiding because they've already heard the lies of the enemy and they're living in shame and sin and guilt. They felt naked. They've lost their sense of worth. And the invitation here, the redeeming words of Christ here, get back. Fig leaves won't take you anywhere. I've clothed you with righteousness. Come back and walk with me today. Get a foretaste of it so one day you and I can walk again in Eden in the cool of the day. That is a relationship that will redeem us. So brothers and sisters, you have to ask yourself this morning, is the manner in which you walk determining how worthy you are or is the worth that god has already declared is that shaping how you walk with jesus it's got to be the latter don't slip into the former like many people in this church seem to have slipped to don't trade this garment of righteousness don't soil it by trying to make it about your name and being preoccupied with what people think about you but remain in the words of him who knows you and yet holds you. Take some time in silence just to reflect on what from this passage is God reminding you of? You relate to the conviction over there. And does the promise of redeeming you from this constant bondage that people are in, do you see the richness of the promise again?
0: We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.